Hello. Good evening, everyone. My name's Michael Coveney. I'm a theatre critic. And I'm here to introduce um, the great maverick director, writer, performer, and um, man about British theatre, Neil Bartlett, who, on the occasion, actually, of his fourth, I think, novel yes. being published, uh, called A Disappearance Boy. Uh, <clears throat> luckily, luckily for us, and luckily for me, and luckily for Neil, I, I've read it and I like it. In fact, <laughs> I like it quite a lot. And it's a very touching story about the theatre in the 1950s, in the, in the, in, at the wrong end of the good old days of variety. And it's set in Brighton, which is Neil's, one of his hometowns, and is very poignant and very um, evocative. And it's all, also rather strange and dark. Um, I've just written down what it's about. It's about Brighton. It's about variety. It's about the year of the coronation, which is 1953. That's very important in this, in this novel. And it's about missing your mother. Yes. Or trying to find her. It's about all of those things. And it's interesting because Neil, who's worked in the theatre uh, with great distinction since the um, 1980s, um, has, has graduated not graduated, that implies an improvement, but has moved into writing novels, all of which have been acclaimed. His very first book in 19, 1988 was a groundbreaking book about Oscar Wilde called Who Was That Man, in which he set up, and it's a theme, I think, in your work, a parallel between the um, underworld and the underlife, as, as it were, of Oscar Wilde and his own um, personality, or a young man's personality in the contemporary world. Very interesting, uh, very experimental, uh, wi widely praised. And since then, he's written three, three novels, including Ready to Catch Him Should He Fall, uh, uh, Mr. Clive and Mr. Page, which was uh, wove an erotic web of conjecture about the death of Rock Hudson, if yeah. I remember rightly. And now The Disappearance Boy. There was another book, which I hadn't read, called Skin Lane, which was described by Armistead Mopan, no less, as a taut psycho-shocker, and it was also praised by Will Self. So this guy, is a, you know, he's got serious credentials here. Um, after his work with experimental companies and solo performances, he, he's always formed his own companies. He worked at the, um, with Complicite's Simon McBurney, whose work you may know, at the Third Eye Centre and the ICA, and he founded in 1988 uh, a company called Gloria, uh, which did a whole raft of amazing um, uh, work. And in the middle of that, he was appointed artistic director of the Lyric Hammersmith, where he transformed that theatre, really, by embracing all sorts of weird and wonderful extremities of the British theatre going on at the time. He's also directed at the National Theatre here. He's directed at the Royal Shakespeare Company. And um, he's, he's been particularly interesting about looking at writers like Genet, maybe obviously, Marivaux, not so obviously, um, Somerset Maugham, and a great production, I thought, of Terence Rattigan's Cause Celebre um, uh, some time ago. 
but he's never stopped and he's now directing operas. And in fact, next week, weekend after next, I'm going to see in Edinburgh, at the Edinburgh Festival, his production of uh, Benjamin Britten's Owen Wingrave. He's also had a great relationship with other um, Benjamin Britten operas. And so he's a man of parts, to put it mildly. And um, I should start maybe Perhaps by inviting Neil, do you think it's a good idea to read a tiny paragraph from the new novel? Would that be a good idea to set us going? I'd be very happy to read. Um, I'd just like to say, Michael, it's great pleasure to do this with you because often when people are summarising that peculiar and torturous list of things I've done, they read it going, what is all this stuff? And actually, you've read most of what I've written and you've seen all of the shows that you've talked about. I mean, we have known each other for a very long time, so it's a great pleasure to be talking to someone who knows. Um, as Michael said, the novel takes place in the coronation spring of 1953, and most of it takes place backstage at a building which no longer exists, the Grand Theatre in Brighton. Now, the story of the novel is... Uh, told sequentially and I don't want to give too much away but I can tell you that the th kind of theatre that it's about is um, magic. The, the plot of the novel revolves around the secret workings of an illusion act um, and this is just a paragraph uh, the beginning of the fourth chapter, where you're about to discover how this illusion act, which is the linchpin of the novel's plot, actually works. And this is how the fourth chapter begins. Illusion acts are always rehearsed without wit witnesses. As with certain other bits of life, it all has to happen behind locked doors. Well, in order to describe to you how this particular act works, obviously I'm going to have to break with that convention, but I don't want anyone to accuse me of taking the magic out of proceedings. So what I'm going to do is first of all describe the act as it will be one night when all the lights are up on the 631st house, and then I'm going to go back and show you how it's all done. All I'd say by way of a warning is that what you need to remember is that a magician is not someone who deceives, but someone who keeps his promise, which is to deceive. All right. <laughs> very good. Now, what's very interesting to me about that, Neil, is that it, it, it's the narrator or the teller of the story talking Maybe it's you. And I know you feel in this novel your world of theatre has overlapped with your world of fiction to a certain extent, but you present the characters, and there's three wonderful, really wonderful characters in this book, objectively in a way. We follow their stories, and then it really closes down to the fate of two of them. The magician is a man called Teddy Brooks. Um, his, in the latter half, of the main part of the novel, his, his assistant, his beautiful assistant, as they used to call, is, is called Pamela. And, in, and the central character of the novel is a strange, wounded, crippled, 
motherless boy called Reggie Rainbow. Um, and uh, it's about his, his immersion in this world and his finding his identity, sexual and psychological to a certain extent, uh, within it. It's all about love, a lot of it. And um, what I wanted to know, for, really, was this world, this vanished world of theatre. This is 1953. None of us saw this stuff. No. You, you've researched it. You know the theatres where it happened. Have you absorbed it by osmosis, almost? The detail, the technical detail of writing about this particular complicated... It's not sawing a lady in half. It's about a disappearance act in which all three characters are conniving. How did you, how did you know about this? Aren't you giving away secrets, like, of the magic <laughs> circle or something? Aren't you blowing the gaff? Well, or does it not matter anymore? I think there's... It does matter very much indeed. Um, I mean, on that issue of the, of the magic, at the beginning of the book, there's an epigraph, which is in Latin. Um, Indocilis privata loqui. Anyone? No? Then no magicians in the house. That's actually the motto of the magic circle, which is the professional union of stage illusionists. And it means Indocilis, um, it is uncouth, loqui to speak, privata of things which should remain private. Um, and researching the technical aspects of the novel was a minefield because magicians will not talk. Um, this is a trade matter. People think, are oh, they're mysterious creatures. No, they earn their living as illusionists. You can only find out how a trick works if you buy it of someone. And they are all sworn to secrecy. Um, but I did find one magician who would tell me just enough, and also I've worked with a magician on one of my shows. Um, when I did the picture of Dorian Gray in the Abbey two years ago in Dublin, I, used, I worked with a very distinguished illusionist. Uh, but I did find someone who would tell me just enough of the nuts and bolts. Of course, I'm waiting for a magician to read the novel. I'm sure she or he will tell me it's complete rubbish. That's not how the trick works. Of course, being a man of the theatre, that's not my concern. So long as you believe me that the trick works, that's all I need. It doesn't need to work. You need to believe it works. And I think that that element of conjuring, conjuring a character, I mean, as a director... I know how to conjure a character. I know how to make a character live in front of an audience. And I know it's a trick. You, you know what it's like. Someone walks on stage, you know who they are before they've even opened their mouth. Someone else walks on stage and you go, oh, I see she's playing the mother. I'm glad I read the programme because she doesn't really seem like a mother. Well, I know what the tricks are to turn one into the other. And I think that I use those tricks when I'm writing. The world, the physical world of the novel, um, being backstage in a tatty old theatre, well, all theatres are... the story of your life, isn't it? It's the story of my <laughs> flipping life, Michael. Yeah, and partic I particularly love the tattier and the older, the better. Yeah. Um, but all theatres are the same. I mean, even this theatre, which has only been here, what, months rather than years. We've just been sitting in the stage manager's office waiting for you 
all to take your seats. It's like every stage manager's office I've ever been in. And I'm sure McCready's was just the same. And I'm sure it backstage at the Globe was the same. There's a certain mechanics, there's a certain atmosphere, there's a smell, the rituals are the same. So the theatre in which the novel takes place doesn't exist. It was burnt down in 1961, having closed in 1955. But I can write about it in absolute detail because the stage door is nicked actually from the Theatre Royal in Brighton. The corridor leading down to the stage door is nicked from the Grand in Blackpool. Um, the staircase, which forms an important part of the plot, is actually at the King's in Edinburgh, where I'm doing my opera next week. So I've, I've stolen a bit from everywhere to but, create but an archetypal experience. Both the Grand in Blackpool and the King's in Edinburgh right. are Frank Matcham as was, theatres. Yes. As was the Grand? As was the Grand and as was the Lyric. So I have a particular affection. For me, a theatre is a place with shabby red velvet and the smell of too much makeup. And I love a good Warren backstage. I a hygienic backstage never quite works for me. I don't think theatre is a hygienic process, so I don't like it to be too clean. Okay. You have been warned. Okay. Uh, <laughs> this, this artist comes with a government health warning. <laughs> I hope um, so. I love, because I, I, some of you may know Brighton. We all love Brighton. Uh, it's the kind of safety valve of, of London in a certain extent. It's certainly an artistic uh, hub uh, at which Neil's been the centre for some time. There was a great writer called Keith Waterhouse said what he liked about Brighton was it always looked as though in a state of ready to help the police with their inquiries. <laughs> and uh, it's this kind of louche, underside, underworld. But in this book, there's something more than that. Your, your, your point about the secrecy of magic is al almost a metaphor for the secrecy of the mm. lives of these people too. There's yeah. something buried about them there's yeah. some wonderful exhalations and, and results at the end of, uh, end of the novel, but it's this thing about living in an underworld, an outside world, which I suppose well, goes right back to Oscar Wilde and, and, and the interest in, in, in those subjects. Yes, the idea of um, impossible lives or forbidden lives or unlikely lives. Those are the ones that I'm interested with good reason. I, um, I was born in 1958 and I grew up in Chichester in the south of England, which I always say is what happens, Chichester is what happens if you leave a lot of white people in one place for hundreds of years. Um, it was not an easy place or time to grow up queer in. Of course, I had to discover myself by unexpected routes and The only other person, sorry to inter interrupt, the only other theatre person I know who grew up in Chichester was Adrian Noble, the former director of the Royal Shakespeare Company, and he was the son of an undertaker. He was. Yes. We went to the same school, did in you? fact. We didn't overlap, but we did go to the same school. But yeah. you're like opposites, aren't you? I couldn't possibly comment on that. <laughs> It just goes to show something, I don't know what. But the idea of, of what's impossible, and I think um, as a younger man, uh, my focus was very much on the politics of impossibility. You know, who is decreed impossible and unlikely? And what are we going to do to the world to change that state of affairs? Um, 
that is still there in this novel. I mean, two out of the three central characters, one is a young gay man and one is a woman. And both of those things were impossible to be in 1953. Um, the role models for women uh, in 1953, you could either be Princess Elizabeth or you could be Princess Margaret. And that was it. Um, we won't say which she becomes. No, we, no, we won't but give that say, away. But you say it's a young, Reggie's young game. He doesn't know about his sexual identity. He doesn't know. Really. Um, and that's what I'm fascinated by, is investigating people who have a need to become themselves, but don't know yet what those selves are to be. And in the, within the secrecy of the magic act, uh, the very fact that they are, um, magic acts are about locking people away into cupboards and making them disappear. As it turns out, sometimes the cupboard in which no one can see what you're doing is a great place in which to invent yourself. And, and the, as you said, the real subject of the novel is love. And in particular, the most mysterious love, the love for which there is no reason and of which there can never be any proof, uh, which is the love between a child and a mother in both directions. It's something we all know exists, but none of us can give it tangible form. Um, mothers don't even wear wedding rings to show their loves for their children. It's, it's the most common kind of love. It's the one which, God willing, almost everyone knows about, but it's the one which takes almost no tangible form. Um, the disappearance boy himself, crucially, has no mother, and Pam, the magician's assistant, has no child but they are both in search of those two things. I think, in a curious way, they are umbilically connected. There's almost a sense in which Pam becomes his mother, uh, or, and their interdependence is quite uh, filial, is that the right word? Maternal and filial. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how, how does this reflect on your, I mean, I'm sorry to, to probe and pry, uh, on your own relationship with your mother, and perhaps in a broader way, you say at the end of the book, you comment on the family connections you have with this particular world of theatre, mm. which are rather charming because your parents both worked as, as service support, in a way, for, well, it, for the no, kind a, of theatre you're writing about. It's a generation about. earlier. It's my grandparents. Oh, your um, grandparents, sorry. My mother is dead. My mother's been dead for 15 years, and this book is a love letter to her every word. Is it about something you didn't complete with her? No, it's about something I did complete with her. Um, so I, I do know how the trick works. Anyway, enough gnomic utterance about love for mothers. Read the book. But it is a love letter to my mother, absolutely. Mm. Um, the familial connection is one of the... Every, every family has their stories, don't they, about what great-grandma did when she was young. And you, you never quite know if they're true, but these ones I checked out. Um, my, this, and this involves my extended family on both sides. My partner's father, who I never knew, uh, he died before my partner and I met. My partner's father was stage doorkeeper at the Golders Green Hippodrome. Uh, for three years after the Second World War, which was the absolute glory days of the Hippodrome. Every 
British star of any ranking did a variety spot at the Hippodrome. And did it become a BBC theatre? And then it became oh, the yes. BBC theatre. Many famous that. comedy shows, yeah. Yeah, and my, on my side of my family, my direct connection is the Wimbledon Theatre, which I don't know if you know, now gloriously restored, another Matcham Theatre in South London, and going great guns. It's the big tryout house for West End shows and musicals there. The last show I saw there was Nine to Five, the musical absolutely flipping fantastic in a packed house consisting 95% of Indian housewives. <laughs> Who knew that Dolly's South London demographic was so strong? Anyway, um, it has a marvellous uh, bar downstage at the back of the stalls called the Pit Bar. And my great-grandma and my great-auntie Enid were both barmaids in that bar and my grandma when she was very young which probably means when she was illegally young worked as helped out behind the bar and in fact worked on the sweets concession in the stalls on some nights now i come from the most the straightest um whitest lower middle class south of england family that is possible to imagine the the mythical 1950s bride and groom who are going to go on and have 2.4 children that is my mum and dad absolutely when i discovered that great grandma who i knew is this little she lived to be 101 little shriveled up creature when i was young she died when i was seven i think great grandma that she was once the barmaid in the pit bar at the Wimbledon Theatre. Flipping marvellous. I think that's Is that fantastic. what started you off, was it? Well, no, I didn't find this out until much later. Oh, no, right. what started me off in the theatre was I grew up in Chichester and Chichester had a fantastic, enlightened uh, first preview policy, which I actually nicked when I ran the lyric, which is if you were local, you could get cheap tickets for the first night. And so we always used to go and queue up on the way to school, my sister and I, and get tickets. So I saw all the shows at Chichester in the early 60s when Keith Michelle was running it there. Mm. Saw fantastic things. First thing I ever saw was uh, The Tempest, uh, designed by Wojtek, and then uh, Anthony Hopkins playing Per Gunt. That was, those were the first two shows I ever saw before I even went to the Panto. And then the other great turning point, when I was at college, a bunch of us went up to the Edinburgh Festival to do performance art at the DeMarco Gallery. And one day, my friend Nicholas and I bunked off to Glasgow and we went to see the Glasgow Sits perform Chinchilla. And that was it. Oh, yes. That was it forever. Well, that, that play was about the Ballet Russe and... Uh... Um, Diaghilev uh, falling out with Nijinsky and taking on his successor, who uh, was it? Fokine? No, yes. Fokine? No, no yes. more Fokine dancing and going on. Anyway, but about the bar lady, this is very interesting. When I first moved into my house in Gospel Oak uh, some years ago, our next door neighbour was a f retired bar lady at the right. London Palladium. Her she marvel. was called Elsie or Lil, I can't remember one of those names. And she was famous, I've since discovered, for sort of just, just skimming off the top of the gin um, uh, uh, dispensations. And she just stashed it away, apparently. Um, right. And she was a real character. And it's interesting that those people represent the theatre, but they're not in it, but they're part of it. Yeah. This relationship between the 
service industries in the theatre, the, the people you talk about. It's all part of it for you, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Those people on the fruit, they are, they are so, so... I mean, there are lots of fantastic things about working here at the National, but one of the best things is the stage door staff here. They are just heaven on a stick. Are they a continuum Abs from the old Absolutely, the old school, fantastic. Yeah. You, I mean, you haven't, if I haven't been through stage door for four years, I get sized up. Hello, Neil. It's fantastic. fantastic. Are they glad to see you back here? I take that as a compliment, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Could I just end by thanking Neil, obviously, but also quoting a line that just came back to hit me this week at, in Streetcar Named Desire, Blanche Dubois' great cry of, I don't want realism, I want magic. Um, and it's a slightly anachronistic production, just to contradict what you're saying about detail. But there is, there is this combination of realism and magic, I think, in your work. Mm. And, um, and I can't think of anyone else in the British theatre who, uh, who does this so, so brilliantly and consistently and over such a long period of time. So it's been a great pleasure uh, for you to talk to us about it. And I do urge you to read the novel. Neil will be signing copies outside, buy it. Um, and if you don't like it, give it to your worst enemy. If you love it, keep it for yourself. And um, it's really worth reading. And thank you so much for coming. Thank you and, very much. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. It's a real pleasure. Thank you.